You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. When we talk about the different events in the life and ministry of Jesus, we tend to emphasize different aspects of his life and ministry at different seasons of the year. Or you may have noticed that different people, preachers, teachers, uh, different people in your family maybe gravitate towards one event or another. Perhaps the birth of Jesus. Perhaps we have a special interest in the miracles of Jesus, those events. We frequently, weekly, daily focus on the crucifixion of Jesus, and we frequently focus on His resurrection. And rightly so. These are crucial aspects of the Gospel, aren't they? Crucial aspects of our foundational accounts of Jesus and who He is and what He's done and why it matters. And they give meaning to our lives and to the church. And they drive who we are. And we come to Jesus to discover His mind and His heart and His passions and His desires so that by God's grace, His mind, heart, passions, and desires can be reproduced in us. There's one event, however, that is frequently neglected. One event that is frequently overlooked. And it's deeply unfortunate that it's so easily overlooked because it is absolutely crucial to God's purposes for His people. In fact, without it, we don't have purposes. Thank you, Josh. Without this event, there's no mission. Without this event, there's no church. Without this event, we're not constituted as a people. In fact, you could even say that this event, this oft-neglected event, is the place where all the others that we've mentioned that are frequently in front of us, this is the place all those events are driving towards. Jesus was born for this reason. He initiated the kingdom through signs and wonders for this reason, this neglected reason. He died and was raised to get us to this point. None of those events are ends in and of themselves. They're all a means to another end. They are driving at another event, and it's an event that we frequently miss. Have you guessed what it is yet? Well, Acts chapter 1 is a good place to start. Acts chapter 1 tells us about the ascension of Jesus. His being taken up into heaven, which is repeated multiple times in the last couple of verses, in the clouds. And we know about the ascension, and we like it. It's a pretty image, isn't it? Jesus is, here He is, after His suffering and His death, He's been raised, and here He's been taken up into heaven. And that sounds great, and we want to go to heaven and and be with Him, and all of these kinds of things. The thing is, 
If we think Jesus being taken into heaven is primarily about us going there to be with him, we've completely misunderstood what he's about in his ascension. Because the ascension of Jesus isn't primarily about what happens after this life, it's about what we do with this life. The ascension of Jesus isn't primarily about what happens after this life, it's about what we do now. It's about our mission. In fact, as we read through Acts, and as we read these opening verses of Acts, we are going to discover again and again and again that the ascension of Jesus legitimates the entire mission of the church. No ascension, no mission. Like if you only have Jesus' death and resurrection without his ascension, there is no biblical legitimation or warrant for the mission. None. The ascension of Jesus legitimates our mission. Let's dig in a little bit. It'll be helpful to know, many of you will already know this, but it may have escaped our thoughts, that Acts is part two of a larger story. We forget this sometimes because Acts comes after the Gospel of John, and it feels very different from the Gospel of John. But before the Gospel of John, we get Luke. And Luke is part one of a story, and Acts is part two of the story. If you take a look at the opening verses of Acts, you hear the author say, in the first book, or in my first book, Theophilus. And Theophilus is probably a wealthy patron who commissioned this work of early church history. In the ancient world, books were very expensive. And if you were going to get the paper or papyrus and the ink and all of the, or the leather, whatever it is you're writing on, all of the supplies and the time that it would take were ridiculously expensive. And so a lot of times if a book was going to be written, you would have a wealthy patron commission it and pay for it. And so, And it's not uncommon at the beginning of a work to sort of honor the person who funded the project. And so we have the author, who is Luke, the gospel writer, referring to the topic of his first book, in which he wrote about all the things that Jesus did and sought from the beginning until the day he was taken up. So gospel of Luke, all the things Jesus did and sought from the beginning, his birth, to the day he was taken up. And where does the gospel of Luke end? It ends with the ascension. So in my first book, I wrote about all the things from the beginning up until the ascension. And the implication then is, now in my second book, I'm going to write about all the things Jesus did after his ascension. And this is one place where we need to kind of think through again. A lot of times you, you have kind of these debates, kind of little debates over what Acts is really about and who the main character is. And It's often called the Acts of the Apostles because the the disciples and their followers are doing the mission. And a lot of times people kind of back up and say, well, it's really about how the Holy Spirit works through the Apostles. So some folks want to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. But if you back up even before, like you get the Holy Spirit, he comes in chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit is crucial, and we're going to spend some time talking about that. But if you back up even further... The implication of the opening verses is that Acts is about Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who sends the Spirit as his powerful presence working through the disciples to bring the gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. Luke is the acts of Jesus from the beginning to his ascension. Acts is the acts of Jesus from his ascension on. As we read through this, never forget, this is about Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Before we hear about the ascension, the events, we discover Jesus presenting himself to the disciples with convincing proofs. Again, Luke is probably kind of grabbing and summarizing some of that stuff from the end of the gospel when Jesus showed up and ate breakfast with the disciples. That sounds like a pretty convincing proof to me. I'm not a ghost, as you might guess. Where's the fish? Because ghosts don't eat fish. But resurrected messiahs do. And so Luke reminds his readers, remember his resurrection and his, the proofs of his resurrection, and he, he shows himself to the disciples, and he appears to them for 40 days, and he speaks to them about what? About the kingdom of God. We're going to come back to that. The Gospels are about the kingdom of God. Acts is about the kingdom of God. It'll be a theme that runs all the way through, and we will come to it again and again and again. But just before Jesus is ascended, we get a little more details. You've got kind of the summary statement. He presented himself. He showed specific proofs of his resurrection. He instructed them about the kingdom of God. And you get a sense here that the disciples are beginning to get a little impatient. Wouldn't you after 40 days? I mean, you've been through the emotion of the crucifixion, the horror of it, the terror of it. You've given up and gone home because you know as well as anybody that a dead Messiah is what? A false Messiah. And then all of a sudden, there's the glory of the first Easter, and Jesus has been raised, and here he is asking for fish. And how exciting that is, and how glorious that is, and how he redeems and restores and forgives those who abandoned him, his disciples. And he's instructing them about the kingdom. And then we get to verse 6, and they've come together, and this is just before he ascends into heaven, and the disciples have a question, and the question suggests they're becoming impatient. And we can identify with that, can't we? Verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of to Israel. Is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, that question reveals some presuppositions, doesn't it? And it also reveals that some of those presuppositions are mistaken in light of what's coming in the rest of Acts. The disciples ask Jesus if he's going to restore the kingdom. And the commentators 
recognize that what they are envisioning is the restoration of a political kingdom. It's because they've been shaped by typical views of what it means for the Messiah to be the Messiah. In the period around the first century, Jewish people were expecting a political king or a ruler to liberate them from the Romans in the way that God had raised up kings and warriors in the past to liberate them from their oppressors. And so the disciples believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and their question is, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it going to be a, a national kingdom? <clears throat> you can see, and we'll find out very quickly, that they have a very small vision of what Jesus is about. Maybe that's a helpful way to read Acts. As a constant diagnosis to ask ourselves the question, is our vision of the kingdom as big as Jesus' vision of the kingdom? Because the disciples, their vision was much narrower in scope than Jesus' vision. We want a political kingdom restored in place of the Romans for Israel in our national borders at this time. Third mistake. We want it immediately. And Jesus doesn't say yes, and he doesn't exactly say no. <laughs> it's more of a, it's not going to work out quite the way you expect. The kingdom is coming. Like, that's what this is about. He's been talking to them in this 40 days about the kingdom. And at the end of, the gospel, or at the end of Acts, we'll hear again that the Apostle Paul is in Rome doing what? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So Acts is kingdom beginning, middle, and end. But not this kind of kingdom. It's not a political kingdom, exactly. It's not a kingdom restricted to a single national set of boundaries. And it's not a kingdom that will be fully visible immediately. And so Jesus tells them, it's not for you to know times or seasons or periods, that the Father has set by His own authority. Here's what will happen. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When He had said this, as they were watching, He was lifted up. We'll talk about that in a minute, but let's talk about this commission. You will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is very quickly explaining to them or offering them this implication that the kingdom he's been talking about for the last 40 days is not restricted to their geographical region. It's going to expand beyond Judea. It's going to expand beyond Jerusalem. It won't stop when the good news gets to Samaria. And you know the good little Jewish boys don't like going over to Samaria very much. 
you're going to have to cross the tracks, get the good news to some people you rather wouldn't mix with otherwise. It's not even going to stop there. It's going to keep going. And really, what we've got here is sort of a, a, a geographical outline of the book of Acts, isn't it? Because as the story unfolds, the first seven chapters are about the expansion of the gospel in Jerusalem. And we'll kind of work through that. And then the, the story unfolds a little bit further. As the church is persecuted, they spread out. God in His providence uses the suffering of His people to advance the gospel. And so when the early believers begin to suffer on behalf of Jesus, when they begin to get persecuted, what do they do? <laughs> well, we better skip down and go somewhere else. So they spread out into the larger region of Judea and Samaria. And chapters 8 through 12 talk about how the gospel has expanded into those regions. And then it continues to spread. In chapter 13, the gospel goes beyond the local region into Turkey, Greece, Ephesus, and ultimately Rome. That's why our image has the Italian peninsula. Because this story comes to its climax with the gospel landing in Rome. And you've heard the saying, probably, all roads lead to Rome. But that means all roads go out from Rome, too. And the implication is, if the gospel gets to Rome, it'll go everywhere. And it has. It's come to us. It's made its way through God's providential faithfulness to more people, groups, than ever before. There's still some waiting. But the gospel will get there too. And that's our calling. To bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Sometime the ends of the earth is in our zip code. Sometimes it's in our county. I was struck one day in uh, Union Springs, Alabama, not far away. Many of you have been there. I was uh, having a chat with a guy who stumbled into the church office and we started talking about Jesus, as we do. And I asked him, what do you, like, what do you, know, about, what do you know about the cross? And he said to me, he said, you know, man, this guy's probably, probably about my age at the time, mid-30s. He said, you know, man, I see crosses all over this town. If you've ever been to Union Spring, you know there are more churches than there are people in Bullock County. <laughs> it's true. He said, man, there's crosses all over this town and churches, and they all got a cross out front. And people wear them around their neck like jewelry and earrings. and Crosses everywhere. He says, I have no idea what it means. I was impressed with his honesty. Most people lie to me. They act like they know what it means, even though they don't. I don't know what it means. We continue to have a, like at that time, he was quite eager. He's like, well, what does it mean? Come on, talk about it. But at that moment, it dawned on me that even in the Bible, like we think about other cities, like, big, like New York or L.A. being places where people can hang out and not know about Jesus, Right? Bible Belt, folks. Union Springs, Alabama. The guy didn't know about the cross. 
Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And sometimes the ends of the earth are in Bullock County. Sometimes they're in Montgomery County. Pick a county. <laughs> this is what Jesus had in mind before he ascended into heaven. This is about the mission of the church. This is another expression of the Great Commission, isn't it? You will be my witnesses. The question then becomes, are you going to be ready to be my witnesses? To that, Jesus says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to come and he's going to enable you to faithfully bear witness to my life, my death, my resurrection, my ascension, my perfect love, the forgiveness of sins, transformation of your life and heart and body into bodies that embody my character. He's going to enable all of that. Will you be ready? Or will you be distracted like these guys? <laughs> Focus on a truncated vision of the kingdom. A kingdom designed around our preferences. That's what the disciples have, isn't it? So Jesus has to reorient what their expectations are. This is the mission. Witnessing to Jesus locally, regionally, and globally. Witnessing to Jesus locally, regionally, and globally. That's why every Sunday when you hear me mention our ministry partners, I'm eager to emphasize that we have local, regional, local ministry partners domestic regional ministry partners and global partners now we can't partner with everybody nobody can do everything the hundreds of thousands of missionaries in the world we don't have enough dollars to send all of them a single dollar we don't have enough time in the week to partner in email and write letters and cultivate relationships but i remember one time a bishop saying to me you can't do everything but you can do one thing so pick out a couple of things that are achievable that you can do. And so we can pick a couple of ministries locally, like First Choice, Women's Resource Center, and Friendship Mission. And instead of spreading ourselves so thin that we're ineffective, we can put serious resources, both people and financial and time and all of these things, into those sorts of ministries that are engaging with people who are Longing for hope. And we can connect regionally. Many of you have been to Louisiana or other parts of the United States to engage in mission and cultivate those kinds of relationships. And we can engage globally. Not with everyone, but we can maintain long-term long partnerships with Casa Bernabe, a ministry for orphans in Guatemala, or the Coppage family in Uganda. Because this defines the shape of the church. Local, regional, global. A lot of churches have been in or visited or encountered. 
People say, well, we do global missions, not local. Or we do local, not global. And I want to say, like, just go read Acts. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And so one of the things we've done, we've said it again and again, is we're going to cultivate a few strategic long-term partnerships for long-term fruitfulness. And dig in for decades. We're not going to go over here for a year and go over there for a year and go over there for a year and not have anything to show for it except some pictures and memories 20 years down the road. We're going to dig in deep and go back to the same places and bring ministry directors here. We'll go to them, they'll come to us, and we'll be real partners in the gospel. And 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, 50 years down the road, 100 years down the road, this church will be able to look back and say, what fruitfulness. What fruitfulness. Long-term work in the same direction, locally, regionally, globally. That is the shape of the mission Jesus gives to his followers. And the basis of that mission is what happens next. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, I mean, imagine what this is like. Maybe you have imagined what it was like, but imagine what it was like. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going up, and they were gazing up towards heaven, suddenly two men in white robes, angel, angelic figures, stood by them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? Notice the wrong response. When Jesus goes to heaven, where are you not supposed to look? Why are you looking at heaven? Weren't you listening to what he just said? <laughs> the church's response to the ascension of Jesus is not to look away from this world to the heavenlies. It is to look to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jesus goes to heaven pointing us to the world. Maybe that should have been the bottom line. <laughs> Jesus ascends into heaven and you think, well, it, like if you were standing there and all of a sudden the Son of God resurrected in glory goes up in some clouds, I imagine all of us would be going, wow, I didn't see that coming. Look, at like this is ridiculous and remarkable and stunning and here we are witnessing the ascension of Jesus and the angels show up and say, why are you like looking at, like what? Why are you gazing into heaven? So what's going on here with the ascension? If we want to get the ascension, the point is not to think, okay, Jesus has gone to heaven to prepare a place for us to take us there later. The ascension isn't about where anyone's going. It's about who's in control here and now. The ascension is about the enthronement of a king. 
And it's the fulfillment of what was anticipated in the Old Testament. If you read Psalm chapter 2, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. Anointed Messiah. Saying, let us burn, burst their bonds asunder and cast the cords from us. He who sits in heaven, the heavens laughs. Who sits in the heavens? Oh, really, who sits in the heavens? Come on. Who sits in the heavens? Jesus sits in the heavens since the day of the ascension. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's Jesus. God saying of Jesus, I've set my king on Zion. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Sound familiar? In Acts, we've got Jesus being seated in heaven and given a scepter as he sends his disciples to take possession of the ends of the earth. This has got Psalm 2 written all over it. The ascension isn't about the sweet by and by. It's about the enthronement of God's Messiah over the nations. And the church is commissioned to the ends of the earth. Our mission is legitimate. There are no borders that are inaccessible. There are no countries that are closed. Because Jesus has authority over every temporal ruler. Those countries don't belong to the dictators. They belong to the Messiah. And your Messiah has said, go, be my witnesses. I have friends, friends, <laughs> who go into countries like with a, with a cover. You know how in the CIA movies, like they'll have a cover? They're a spy, but they're pretending they're a teacher. They're a spy, but they're pretending they're some other sort of like normal job. Like I have friends who go and get a degree from a university in some very not like ministry sounding kind of thing. And then they go to another country and they get a job. This isn't really a secret. People know that this happens. Doing whatever, teaching or agriculturing something, right? Whatever it is, they go and they do this. And it's a cover so that they can start having Bible studies and planning churches in places where you're not allowed to do that sort of thing, right? They don't put signs out front and there's no Facebook page. <laughs> Nobody's live streaming anything in these places. And when I get the little missionary cards, I just see the back of their heads. Because you don't blow your cover by putting your face on a, hey, we're missionaries in a place where they don't let missionaries come. Kind of little picture. So we've got to get past this idea that like Christian missions is like this fun little vacation where we go down and do some nice service projects and take a day at the beach before we come home. Like, this is about how Jesus infiltrates every square inch of this world and he has the authority because he is enthroned in heaven. Ask of me. 
And I'll give you the nations, God says to his son. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, and this is... (laughs) This is the message of those kings. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, with trembling. Kiss his feet, or he will be angry and you will perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But happy are those who take refuge in him. Now this is hard for us to understand because we live in a a republic. And people who live in a republic don't really get kings. That was kind of the point, right? We don't want a king. (laughs) So we left. And created a republic. If you don't know what that means, go read a book on early American history. And so we just, like, we're not, the idea of someone, like, one person being in charge of everything and just call it all the shots, we resist that. And so we come to these texts about Jesus being the one person who calls all the shots, and we struggle with it. And so we kind of spiritualize it. Well, he's the Lord of my life. Yes, he is, but that's not all. He's also the king of the ends of the earth. when we say Jesus is king of kings that means you take all the kings and he's not king in a different column he's king at the top of the column when we say Jesus is lord of lords take all the lords whether they're senators or presidents or parliamentarians or prime ministers Jesus isn't lord in a different column he's lord at the top And the kings of the earth would do well to wisely offer themselves to him. The thing I want you to see is that when Jesus ascends, he's not going to a far-off place to wait for us. He's going to mission control. Heaven, in the Gospel of Luke, is mission control for the Mission to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. One theologian said, the one who reigns in heaven calls the shots on earth. The image isn't escape. The image is enthroned in power over all the other lower kings who think they're hot stuff, but are actually just second rate. (laughs) And they don't have the power they think they have the power of. In our devotionals this week, in our family time, we read a lot. We were reading about Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Daniel chapter 4, he thought he was hot stuff. Supreme ruler, head honcho, top dog. And God's response to him was you're going to go out into the fields and crawl around eating grass for seven years until you realize that the Most High is sovereign and He gives the kingdoms of the earth to anyone He pleases. Remember that next election cycle? Daniel chapter 4, verse 26, I think. The Most High gives the kingdoms of the earth to whoever He pleases. When your candidate loses, it's not because God isn't involved. It may be, check that, (laughs) he gives the kingdoms of the earth to whoever he pleases. We're not going to get off into speculating about his purposes in that. The point is, his sovereign kingship is exercised from heaven, starting with the ascension. 
God exercises sovereign, kingly authority through Jesus from heaven on earth. We got to get past this. Just doing my thing here until I go up, you know, till I fly away or something, right? The one who reigns in heaven calls the shots on earth. Jesus goes to heaven and is seated on a throne, is given a scepter, wears a crown, and every knee bows before him in the end, and every tongue confesses Jesus Christ is Lord. And the mission that he sent, the last thing he says before he ascends, you are my witnesses, the last thing that happens is legitimated by the ascension. Heaven isn't a faraway place. Heaven is the way Jesus engages in ruling his dominion. And you are his representatives. When you get up and you go to work tomorrow, you're his witnesses. When you get home this afternoon and you're eating lunch with your family, you are his witnesses. When you take that trip and go on vacation, when you go on the mission trip, when you show up at church, when you go play golf or go hunting or read a book or have a coffee or whatever, you are his witnesses. Heaven is the throne room for Christ's earthly kingdom. And the church is called to carry the gospel of the kingdom, which was inaugurated when the king hung on the cross and they wrote king of the Jews above his head and a crown of thorns was placed on his head. And God didn't abandon him to the grave, but raised him up. And now the resurrected Lord has called us and commissioned us and has ascended to the place of supreme authority. And that defines everything we do and everything we are. Parents, as parents, our primary role is not to make sure our kids are good baseball players or that they do their homework. That's fine. We play ball. We do homework. We homeschool, so all of our work is at home. There's a lot of it. Our primary role is to make sure that our children become faithful witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know how they learn to do that? Same way they learn everything else by imitating you. <clears throat> that weighs heavily on my soul because I'm reminded how frequently I fall short of staying 100% focused on that. But it is crucial 
crucial. That we are faithful to this commission and that we faithfully hand it on to the next generation. We will be tempted by distractions. We will get busy, we will get tired, we will be frustrated. Things will come up that seem like they have to take all our energy. We must not, church, we must not lose sight of this mission. And we must not lose sight of the Lord who has called us. And we're going to spend the better part of this year immersing ourselves in the implications of the ascension of Jesus. And we are going to prayerfully call upon him to form us and keep this passion of his always in front of us. Everything that happens in Acts is a consequence of the ascension. Everything that happens in Acts is an outworking of the ascension of Jesus. The question for us is whether or not we have found our place in this story. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hall United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.